I wonder if you ever feel uh, a bit like these guys here. I want you to have a look at this little clip. I didn't say I would kill you, I just feared you. Novak Djokovic apologizing for this fiery moment caught on camera at the Miami Open. Watch again, the boy delivering the towel is shaking. Today, Grand Slam officials fined Williams $82,500 for her outburst at a lineswoman over a football call. A pro tennis player's mid-court meltdown. He lobbed the ball into the stands, aiming for the crying baby that was rattling his game. Oh, shut up. Code violation. Receiving a code violation for screaming at the crowd to shut up. American tennis player Jeff Tarango lashed out angrily at his Wimbledon umpire. You are the most corrupt official in the game and you can't do that. Code violation, verbal abuse, point penalty, no Mr. Way. Tarango. That's it! You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line! Short flew up! Some of you maybe remember some of these people. I'm sure we all remember the last one anyway. Uh, you cannot be serious. I think many of us know how that feels. So much nicer to be watch somebody else do that than us being recorded and then being shine, uh, shown up on that screen this morning. But in this world, it's easy to be frustrated, isn't it? It's easy to get so frustrated with other people. To be irritated by their actions and the, by their attitudes. Even to get furious about how they've treated us. Or how they've done things to hurt us. And although we don't usually react by attacking the other person, we can justify feelings like that. Maybe even speaking out to them and attacking them verbally. Or maybe even just complaining to others about how horrible those people are. Because after all, it's all the other person's fault, isn't it? It's all their fault. But is that okay? Is it okay for us to be angry when people get under our skin? Or does Jesus want us as his followers to be different in our anger? This morning we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 down to verse 26. A really challenging passage this morning. Uh, if we're really being going to be honest with God this morning as we read this, it's really going to challenge many of our lives. Because it's one of those issues that so many of us struggle with in our private times. Uh, so let's read it together. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. 
I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the first of of six examples that Jesus presents in this sermon of the, the righteousness that God is looking for in our lives. This righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because it's not limited just to external compliance or just to limited circumstances. But it's a total, complete, wholehearted love for God and a selfless love for others. That's what Jesus is looking for in our lives. But as we talked about last week, this is a standard that we could never reach ourselves, no matter how much we tried. It's beyond us. And so, instead, Jesus reveals, as Jesus reveals God's true standard of holiness, He does that so that we can accurately see the sinfulness of our hearts. And we can turn to Him and accept His mercy and His grace. And then, as forgiven followers, we can allow Him to lead us in this brand new life of living the way He wants us to. And so, as we look at these sections in Matthew chapter 5, if we think the standard is too high and I'll never get to there, well, that's okay. Because I think that's what Jesus wants us to conclude. He wants us to understand that this righteous life is beyond us so that we turn to Him for the forgiveness that we need and the power to live this new life. And as we'll see, each of these six sections begins with a a remarkable claim of authority. When the prophets in the past spoke, they said, this is what the Lord says. They were claiming just to be the spokesman for God. Repeating to others what God had said to them. When the rabbis in Jesus' day taught, they also never claimed to be inspired or to, be, to speak from their own authority. Instead, they often referred to previous rabbis. Or introduced their teaching by saying, there is a teaching that says, and what? And when we, we teach God's truth in church, we also don't claim to have authority in ourselves. Because we say, the Bible says. We only speak from the authority of Scripture today. But in each of these six sessions, sections, Jesus began by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, In contrast with what other people had taught, Jesus claimed to have the personal authority to give the definitive explanation of what God is looking for in our lives. Now Jesus wasn't correcting scripture. The scripture doesn't need to be corrected. But rather he was claiming the authority to correct the wrong ideas of what scripture meant or how it applied to people's lives. In this first example, I'm sure you've noticed that Jesus spoke about the sixth commandment. Do not murder. A clear prohibition against taking another person's life in an act of homicide. 
And it was given because as human beings, we have been made in the image of God. And so we have intrinsic value and worth. Our life is an absolutely precious gift from God. And no one has the right to destroy that life. That life is precious and we need to guard it. And I'm sure none of us were going to disagree about that this morning. This week we have again seen the horror of murder, haven't we? Has been revealed in the case of Kenneth O'Brien, the 33-year-old man whose remains were found in a suitcase on the banks of, a, of the Grand Canal. None of us would hesitate to say that that's wrong, that that's evil, that that's against God's will. And we wouldn't argue that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. They should face the consequences of their actions. Not just on that final day of judgment, but also now through the legal system. Of course, we may have different ideas about the type and the extent of that punishment. But we would accept that our society needs to protect the lives of its people. Murder is wrong. And there should be a consequence to those who commit it. And if Jesus stopped there, if that was the end of this passage, most of us would be comfortable with that, wouldn't we? We've not committed this crime, have we? No? We've not murdered anybody, so we're okay about this. I remember when we used to do a lot of uh, door-to-door work, knocking people's doors and trying to talk to them about God. So many people used to always say, I haven't murdered anybody. It's very reassuring to know that we're living in a town where it's not full of murderers in that sense. But they're so happy to tell us that. And maybe they say, we haven't murdered anybody, we've kept that law. But the challenge in this passage is, of course, that this commandment against murder goes so much further than this. Verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. This command doesn't only prohibit the act of murder, but also the internal attitude of anger that is behind it all. Now when we're talking about anger, I think it's important to really recognise that there is such a thing as righteous anger. As God looks at this world of violence and greed and corruption and exploitation, He responds in anger. Romans chapter 1, the first chapter of Romans chapter 1 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. God is angry at sin. This is an expression not only of his holiness, but also his love for mankind. It is because of his passionate and complete love for us that he is totally against sin. And wholeheartedly committed to confronting it and punishing it 
Because he knows how much the sin of the world is impacting the kids that he loves. Today, God's anger is revealed as he allows mankind to head downward on that self-destructive spiral of depravity. Think the world's a mess. Romans chapter 1 tells us why. But one day, this anger will be fully revealed on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The wrath of God is clearly taught in the scriptures. We can't avoid it, even although it makes us feel uncomfortable. Even although we would rather hide away from that and focus on some other nicer things as we think. The wrath of God is an integral part of who he is and his response of of holiness and love towards the sin in this world. Of course, as we've been celebrating this morning already, as believers in Jesus, we've been rescued from that wrath. As sinners, that's the wrath that we should have des- that we deserved. That should have been ours. But because of Jesus suffering the full weight of God's wrath in our place on the cross, we can be forgiven. Isaiah 53 and 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The horror of the cross the pain and the shame and the agony of the cross is a revelation of God's righteous anger at sin. So God is righteous in his anger against sin. And so it's possible for us to experience that similar righteous anger over evil and injustice and cruelty in this world. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. And so Paul warns, even though Paul warns about the dangers of anger, he's also saying that not all anger is sin. In fact, I think it's very difficult as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to look on the world and not respond in some aspect of, of righteous anger at the horrible things that are happening in our world. But our problem is, more often than not, our anger is not of this righteous type. It usually comes not out of a righteous indignation against all the horrors in this world, but it comes out of our selfishness. It comes out of our pride. It's full of our self-importance and our vanity. Despite all of the huge injustices and inequalities in this world, the things that make us most angry are usually when we're hurt, when we're overlooked, when we have been neglected, when we've been cheated, or when we don't get our own way. It's the the Q-jumper that gets us angry. Or the bad driver. Or the forgetful husband. Or the insensitive church member. Those are the people that get us mad. And this anger is often uncontrolled. 
and unbalanced and out of proportion to the situation that is stirred up. It's a bit like a guy in Seattle a couple of years ago in July 2014 who accidentally burned down his house. The problem started, this is actually true, the problem started when he found a spider in his laundry. And he tried to kill it, not by stamping on it, as most of us do, or hitting it by the newspaper. Sorry for those who love spiders. Spiders are not, not welcome in our house, I'm afraid. He tried to kill it with a cigarette lighter and a can of spray paint. His own little homemade flamethrower. But he accidentally lit the wall of, 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 on fire and it spread to the rest of his house and burned the whole place down. Did he get the spider? <laughs> I don't know. You can imagine the spider crawling out of the burned ashes in this house, can you? Drastic response to a small problem. Unbalanced, out of proportion. And that's the kind of overreaction that, that we often experience, isn't it, in our anger? When we light that fire of anger in response to our issues, it just consumes everything and everyone around us. So James writes in James chapter 1 verse 20, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And we would all agree, wouldn't we? Who'd say, yeah God, I know that. Anger makes good decisions harder to make. Anger distorts our visions. Anger messes up our hearts. So although it's right, anger is not always sin. Our anger often leads us to sin. Proverbs 29 and 22 says this, An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. But in this passage, Jesus goes even further than this. He doesn't just say that unrighteous anger leads to sin. He says, unrighteous anger is sin in of itself. Even if we never let it develop into the act of taking someone's life or lashing out at someone, it is still tantamount to murder in God's sight. This is what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer in God's sight. And so, although no human court or could or would ever prosecute someone for being angry, we will be subject to judgment, Jesus says. God will hold us accountable for the attitude in our hearts. In God's sight, hatred and anger is murdering them in our hearts. So we must have a zero tolerance of unrighteous anger in our lives. We need to refuse to give any room for that kind of thing, that kind of sinful resentment in our lives. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. It doesn't belong in our lives if we have trusted in Jesus. Of course, means that we need to be careful with what we say 
That's what we see is often an expression of what's in our heart, isn't it? When I was young, a few years ago, uh, some, when someone was really being horrible, sometimes we said, sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt me. We're trying to say that although if somebody come in and attack us, physical violence, it would hurt. People calling us names, people insulting us, it won't hurt. It'll just wash off us like water off a duck's back. The big problem with that, isn't there? It's not true. It's not true at all. Words do hurt. Insults do impact us. Verbal abuse can leave really deep internal scars in our lives that can last a lifetime. And so these hurtful words should never be part of our lives if we're trying to live that righteous life that Jesus wants for us. So Jesus says in verse 22, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. To call someone Raka was to insult their intelligence. That's why I'm, I'm, some of us will recognize the x-ray of Homer Simpson there. Uh, it was to call them empty-headed. <coughs> stupid. An idiot. It was classed as a slander that was punishable by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. But really what the Sanhedrin thought of it was the least of their worries. Because Jesus went on, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This insult, insult is probably more to do with their character. Raka is to do with their intelligence. You fool was to do with your character. Calling him an outcast, someone who lived in reckless abandon, a rebellion against God. But Jesus said, it was the person who used this kind of abusive language who were far from God and who would face judgment. Any kind of abusive or insulting language has no place in the mouth of God's people. This is what James writes in James chapter 3, 9 and 10. With the tongue, we praise our, fa- our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not These kind of words are inconsistent with the righteous life that God is looking for. They are inconsistent with loving God and loving others. So Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. We must only use our words to build other people up. To share with them the truth. To encourage them to live in the right way. To lead them in their faith, to faith in Christ. And help them to keep on living for Him. That's the words that God wants to put in our mouths. If we're being really honest, we know that we can't do that in our own strength. I'm so glad that you, you don't hear all the words that come out of my mouth. I'm sure you'd be the same. So we need God's help 
to control our tongues. So David prays in Psalm 141, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's a prayer that many of us want to pray this morning as we think about that. God, stop me saying those things. Don't let those kind of words come out of my mouth. But only the words that help other people, that build them up, that bless them, that express your love to them. But you know, even with the best of intentions, all of us can end up in times of of broken relationships, strained friendships. And so Jesus here went on to apply this principle to how we should respond in these different kinds of situations. He gave us two examples. The first one is in a time of worship. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus says. For us, I think the the equivalent would be a Sunday morning worship service, like today. We're worshipping the Lord. We're singing songs of praise. We're listening to God's word. We're praying for God's blessing. But then we remember that we've done something to hurt or offend someone else in our church family. What should we do? Is it okay just for us to put it to the back of our mind? Should we resolve to to deal with it later sometime? Or should we just remind ourselves that we've been forgiven by Jesus and so we can just forget about it? Well, Jesus says none of these things. He says instead, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Immediately break off your time of worship. Stop singing that song. Stop praying for blessing. Stop being involved in that worship time. And instead, first go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Go and admit your fault. Give your apology. Ask for forgiveness. Work for reconciliation. And then come back and worship God. I think it's clear that what Jesus is saying here is that we cannot love God if we don't love His children. We cannot honour Him if we're disrespecting His family. We cannot worship Him if we don't care about His kids. Whoever loves God, John writes, must also love his brother. The second case is slightly different. It's a court case. This time our problem is not with our brother but with our enemy. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. But you know the basic message is the same. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait until you stand before the judge and you're forced to pay. If you do, the consequences will be much greater. You'll be thrown into prison. That idea of being thrown into a debtor's prison. 
And although many, most of us haven't been in that situation of a court case, we do understand how to apply that principle in our lives, I think. Because it's difficult to go and own up to the things that we've done wrong. It's difficult to go and say sorry to somebody and to make amends. And so we tend to put those things off, don't we? Put it on the back burner, put it on the to-do list. Down the to-do list, somewhere. Hope it maybe just goes away without us having to confront that issue. But the longer that we leave it, the more we try and avoid those difficult steps, the harder it gets. So what does Jesus say? Do it now. Don't delay another moment. If you're in that kind of situation, go and sort it out now. And so although those two situations are very different, and the people involved are very different, the message is very similar. It's a call for us to repent against, to repent from our, our wrong attitudes or our wrong behaviour sooner rather than later. We need to go and admit our wrongs. Turn away from that attitude and do what we can to make it right. As Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 verse 8, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Of course, we can't do any of this on our own strength, guys. We can't just do it through our own efforts. Jesus never calls us just to kind of turn over a new leaf or pull up our socks or try harder. Because he's offering to do this in our lives through his power. We can depend on God to produce this in our lives through His Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 verse 23 says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God wants to pour into our lives. This is what God wants to make grow within our lives, our character, our personalities. He's not asking us to produce this ourselves. He's just asking us to allow Him to do it in us. It's the Spirit who pours His love into our hearts to empower us and to control our tongues. To give us the patience we need with those difficult people or frustrating situations. To give us the grace that we need to be peacemakers in this world. So this is the righteous life that Jesus is looking for. Yeah, we live in a frustrating world. and a hurtful world. Yes, there are situations that are upsetting and deeply annoying. But we mustn't give any place in our lives to anger and resentment. We must guard our mouths from any kind of insult or abuse of language. And we must do everything we can, as soon as we can, 
to resolve problems and reconcile relationships. God wants us to live a life of love. To love Him with our whole hearts and soul and mind and strength. And to love each other as we, as we love ourselves.